Welcome to Rex's Bible Minute, a weekly video where I talk about Jesus, Christianity, and anything along those lines. And we are still in our Thessalonian study. We are beginning chapter four. Um, it's been two weeks because I was on vacation last week, so if you missed out, sorry. Um, but we're right back into it. Um, so real quick, let's do a, let's do a recap um, of you know the basics of this letter. Uh, the first, it was written by Paul after he had been run out of town after starting the church in Thessalonica. He was there for only a brief time, and he's writing to them for a couple reasons. But it's pretty much primarily uh, to, to, to continue on the teaching that he had and to respond to some of the things he's been hearing and the report he got back after he sent his disciple Timothy to go check on this new church. Um, and so... Now, that's what this letter is. We're going to be starting chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Um, this is where we kind of see a transition, but we'll talk about that here in a second. Um, but before we get into this, uh, this section of the letter, uh, it's it, it deals with sexual things, right? Um, part of being a Christian is, is being called to holy living, and we're going to talk about what that looks like. In chapter 4, Paul deals with three enormous aspects to living a holy life. He deals with sex, he deals with money, and he deals with death. Three huge topics to, to every Christian, let alone new believers in a young church. So this week we're talking about sex and what God calls us to live in aspects of that and, and how we're supposed to view that. And, you know, Paul just gives some instructions for, for living a, in a holy way in regards to our sex lives. That being said, some of you parents may not want to watch this with your kids if you're not ready to have that discussion. Um, and you may, or some of you may just be uncomfortable with that. I would, if you're the second category there, I would encourage you to listen along anyways because you probably need to hear this. But I just want to give parents out there specifically a little heads up so that you can make the decision yourself. Maybe watch this beforehand and then come back and watch it with the kids later. Whatever you want to do. Um, but now the decisions in your court can't blame me if you know you watch this because as your warning. Okay, so that being said, let's start chapter four verses one through eight. Um, this is really all the further we're going to get today. So it says this: Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of our God your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So we're reading a letter, right? This is from a letter. So let's put ourselves back into the train of thought here, right? The first three chapters have essentially been a prayer slash Paul responding to the situation that he and the Thessalonian church are in, right? He hasn't been able to come visit. And so he sent Timothy. And so he's been talking about the storms, the persecutions, the good things that these, this church has done. He's been responding to all of that. Now he gets to the part where he can continue the teaching that he wanted to but got cut short when he was actually there among him. This is not exhaustive, but this is kind of like it feels like he's picking up where he left off kind of deal, right? And so that's what this is. This is the beginning of him continuing the instructions that he gave them when he was there with them. Um, 
And so chapter three is, or chapter four, sorry, is 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 dealing with at first sex, then it'll switch to money, and then it'll switch to death. And the end of the book, of the letter, really, uh, it, it deals primarily more with uh, what happens when we die, Jesus returning stuff, and that's that's the majority after these first two thirds of this chapter. Um, and so, in order to understand chapter four, we have to understand a concept. Or at least have a basic understanding of it. You know, let's make sure we're on the same page, basically. And that is the concept of holy living. I've already mentioned it once. And in this section, verses 1 through 8, Paul talks about holiness uh, three times in verses 3, 4, and 7. So it's probably a good idea that we actually know what that means. Like if I came up to you right now and said, define holiness, could you? And so let's let's make sure we all have that same we're on the same page that we all understand holiness at least in its basic premise because it's a massive concept. But for Paul, if he mentions holiness or purity, it, his frame of reference would have been the Jewish world he grew up in. Because the Jewish world at this time was saturated in ritual purity. I'm sure you've heard about things like the food laws, the kosher food laws, can't eat pork. Uh, then there's ritual purity laws like, you know, they can't touch a dead body. Or there's things related to women's menstruation and all kinds of crazy rules and stuff like that. All those laws deal with ritual purity specifically for the temple. Right. If you were going to go to the temple, you had to be ritually pure. There are a lot of rites and rituals and things that had to do, washings that would, you know, make a person ritually pure before they went before God at the temple. Because you have to remember, the temple in in this time period, two thousand years ago, that was the only place you could go to find God. What I mean by that is that is the only place that God met with humanity on a regular basis. You know, God, you can't put him in a box and say he didn't show up other places. I'm, of course he did. But as far as the one place where he resided, to put it simply, on earth, that was the temple. And so if you were going to go meet with God, you had to be ritually pure. There are a lot of rules and regulations and things you had to do to make sure you were pure, to make sure you were holy. And the word holy isn't necessarily a um, something you, you become or something you do. It, it, it's something that is done to you. You become, you get made holy because the word holy just means set apart. If you see a word like sanctify or sanctification, like he uses here, those that's the same word. It, it means to be set apart, to be something special. And so, if we're not earning it because we can't, we are made holy because Jesus is holy. What was done for him is done for us. That's a concept Paul talks about a lot of other places, especially in Ephesians, if you remember our study there. And so we are made holy, and then if you really remember or studied this before, you know that we have the Holy Spirit living within us as followers of Jesus, making us the temple, right? We are the temple now because the temple is where God resided, remember? And so we are where God resides, within us. And so we have to live holy lives, pure lives, because we are the temple. We don't go to the temple anymore. And so that's kind of what Paul is getting at here. That's the frame of reference he's coming from, is that if we were going to go to a temple or the temple to be made ritually pure, how much more should we live ritually? Should we live pure, holy lives, you know, because we are the temple? You know, it all comes down to we have to be holy because God is holy. That's that's what the scriptures tell us. Uh, and so we're going to be looking specifically at sexual holiness. You know, and essentially you could say holiness is living the way God wants you to do, living in a way that pleases God, right? And so God has standards for everything in our lives. Now, there's a famous saint you may or may not have heard of called St. Francis. And when I say saint, that word saint just means sanctified or holy one. 
every believer is a saint. We are saved. But, you know, history and the church throughout history has pointed to special Christians who went above and beyond or for whatever reason and said this person is extra special and they call them saints. Um, it's not really biblical, but, you know, it's it's not wrong to say some people did amazing things in the name of Jesus. That's great. Like, honor and respect that. St. Francis was one of those guys, and in his writings, he famously refers to his body as the donkey. Yeah, let that sink in. He calls his body the donkey. And that doesn't necessarily mean he looked like a donkey or he smelled like a donkey. He may have. I don't know. But he says, in the way a donkey doesn't always do what you want it to do, our physical flesh side of us doesn't always do what we want it to do. Right? You know, the human body is, is this interconnected system of nerves and chemicals and, and things that just, you know, it changes us. And how we feel isn't always up to us, right? Like, it, it's not always a choice for us. How we feel and then the resulting how we act. It can be something that's hard to get to control. In our local fair, we always have a horse show. And my favorite part of the horse show, bar none, is the mule race. A mule is a horse and a donkey's offspring, you know, and it acts like a donkey. Sometimes they go the right direction, sometimes they don't. It's a comedy thing, basically, because, you know, it's hard to get a mule to go where you want it to do. St. Francis says it's hard to control our fleshly selves because it likes to go a direction that we don't want to go. And so when it comes to our sexuality, it's kind of a good way to think about it, isn't it? especially with the world we live in today. But before we talk about that, let's let's recap what we talked about several weeks ago in Ephesians about the 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 background for marriage and sexuality within the world Paul was writing to. Now, I mean, it breaks down into three parts. The first part is the Jewish part where as on this list of like three cultures, the Jewish view of marriage and sexuality is by far the best um, because they at least say in writing you shouldn't get divorced unless you have good reason, right? They look at the scriptures and, and the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and they say, you know, unless you find reason, just cause. And, you know, there are schools of thought on that. Some say the only reason you could divorce your wife was um, if she cheated on you. And then others say the, unjust, the just cause could be anything. They ruined your supper. They were too loud. They were nagging, whatever reason you want. So in Paul's day, the, the second group were, were winning out as far as, justifying divorce and divorce was becoming incredibly common that's why jesus talked about it so much it's because people weren't following the spirit of the law they're following the letter of the law and finding loopholes and it gets worse from there the greeks viewed marriage as basically a means for having children right there's a famous quote by a guy named demosthenes who's a famous philosopher type and he said that we have you know prostitutes for pleasure concubines for companionship and then wives for raising children I, it's a horrible view of marriage, but that was the prevalent one amongst the Greek world. And then the Roman world is the worst off because they, they just saw marriage as a means to an end. You only got married so you could get divorced, and you only got divorced so you could get married. It's just complete disregard for the sanctity, the holiness of, of marriage. And so that's the world Paul is writing into. He's writing to a Gentile primarily, but also including Jewish um Jewish readers in the, the Thessalonian church. And so all three cultures are, are hearing Paul's words as he writes them. Um, on top of that, they live in a city that has uh, pagan cults all over it. You know, Thessalonica was a major city. And so what that means is they had major temples there. And, ma- and, and some of these pagan cults, uh, the, the temples almost doubled as brothels, like temple prostitution in order to keep the gods happy was was extremely common and you know putting a, a, a line as to what is sexually okay and what is not 
was gone. Very similar to today's world where, you know, there's just all, all these deviant, amoral, wrong sexual things. There are tolerated if not encouraged in these temple brothels basically and so that's the backdrop to what paul is writing into when he wrote these words that we read sexual morality was extremely limited at best you had the jewish view which you know said it was constrained to marriage and at worst you had the roman view of whatever you want do it and so paul writes basically four things four instructions for how to have be sexually holy, how to live a sexually holy life. And the first one he says is no fornication. He says it in verse uh, 3. He starts out by stating the reason for his list. He says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, or your holiness, right? Remember, sanctification and holiness are the same word. Uh, sanctification is the process of becoming sanctified or holy. So he starts off by saying, like, this is the reason I'm giving you this list, because this is what God wants that you be made holy. And he says that you abstain from sexual immorality. See, sexual immorality is a really nice way of saying fornication, right? Don't know fornication. And so what is fornication or sexual immorality? Uh, we've talked about it a lot. That God has standards for every aspect of our life, right? That's part of what being holy means is to aim for God's standards. Try to live in a way that pleases God. And you know, I, I, we could spend the rest of this lesson talking about God's standards for sexuality or sex itself, um, but I'm not going to because, you know, I have other things we, we need to talk about. Um, but it basically boils down to this, that God said sex should be within the confines of marriage between a, a man and his wife, a biological male and a biological woman who have agreed to marry each other under, under the auspices of God's holy covenant, that they have made a covenant that said, I'm yours, you are mine, nobody else. That is where sex should happen, and only there. Uh, and so anything outside of that is fornication. And Jesus said that if you look, it's the same as if you do. So that means pornography is fornication. That means imagining things with that other person is fornication. I mean, fornication is rampant. We're going to talk about that at the end of today. But the reality is that our world has, has looked at this and said, nah, I'm good. <laughs> They've said, no, nah, we don't need that because as long as you look but don't touch, that's okay. But we're going to talk about how that has not worked out at all, about we are seeing extremely dire consequences because of that attitude. It's essentially like we're living in the Roman world. You know, We have one rule when it comes to sexuality in today's society. As long as it doesn't hurt anybody, go for it. You know, how dare you tell somebody how, how their sexuality is supposed to be acted out? But Paul says that he, the confines of marriage are the only place sexuality is supposed to happen, and you can't go outside of that, period. Don't do it. None of it. That's not God's will. And then the second instruction, he says, is you have to have self-control sexually, even within the confines of marriage. Um, you know, he says in verses 4 through 5, he says that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. You know, picture the, the readers of this, right? They live in a world where it is encouraged, it is their patriotic duty to keep the gods happy by going to the brothels, the temples, I'm sorry. 
and that they would be constantly in search of a new partner. If the Romans, specifically a wealthy Roman, they would have, you know, been married. Either didn't work out. We're gonna go. We're gonna marry another woman. You know, I'm gonna jump around. I'm gonna do whatever I want. And they just live according to their lust, the self gratification, everywhere they want. Paul says, "You used to be like that, but not you're not. But if you're gonna be a Christian, you're gonna live a holy life. You can't bring those same patterns into your marriage." You can't just, you can't act that way, live that way, treat people that way. You can't treat your wife that way. You can't treat your husband the same way you did before. You have to have self-control and live with holiness. Live according to God's standards, the way he wants you to. Control yourself. Don't, you can't live like, the, like you used to. You have to have self-control. And the next instruction he says is no cheating. Verse 6a, he says, nobody should break this rule or cheat a fellow Christian in this area. Now, some translations kind of emphasize more like don't steal wives, and that's valid. That is true. But really the point of this is, is, is be faithful. You know, if God's standards are a husband and a wife and that's it, you can't cheat. You can't step outside of that for any reason. There's no justifiable reason for stepping outside of that. If you are married, that is the only place sex can happen. If you're not married, sex can't happen, period. You know, this is a kind of an uncomfortable sub topic, but it's something that we have to talk about because so many people ignore this and the world's not going to tell you the right answer. If you are trying to figure out how to live your life sexually, you're not going to find it anywhere but here, anywhere but the Bible, anywhere but the teachings of Jesus and his apostles. And the last thing that Paul says is that these instructions come from God himself and are backed up by his judgment. And it says in 6b, the Lord is the avenger in all such matters, just as we told you before, and testified solemnly. What that means is that these, these standards for sexuality, these standards for sexual holiness, they're God's. They're not Paul's. It's not his opinion. It's not him trying to ruin your fun. It's for a reason. These are God's standards, and there's judgment for if you don't follow them, if you don't live by them. And most of the time, it's your own consequences is the judgment right in this life there are very severe consequences for not living a sexually moral life and this is the part where we talk about the current state of affairs this is where we talk about how we apply these lessons to ourselves and there's the obvious right there's the obvious like okay uh if you've been having an affair stop it okay i know it's not as simple as that but yeah <laughs> I mean, that's the obvious one. Stop cheating. If you're not married and having sex, stop it of any kind. Stop it. Right? Those are the obvious ones. I'm not there to ruin your fun, but there are consequences of that. But what we need to look at is the much more, much deeper lying issue. Because we live in a world that is almost exactly the same as the Roman one of the first century. And what I mean by that is sexual morality is dead. And that and I'm not talking necessarily about the homosexual or transsexual issues. I'm talking about in general, sexual morality is gone. I mean, how any Christian can watch shows like the Game of Thrones and think that's okay? You can't. That is, you can't. And so I'm not trying to meddle. I'm not trying to like be a, a big like, no, 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 because you know there's enough of that out there of Christians just sitting there saying, we're against this, we're against this, this is bad, this is wrong. But this is a much bigger issue than just, you know, I think that's wrong, ha, ha, ha. Like, this is, this is a serious issue that the church has failed in a massive, massive way to address. 
Because in the end, we look at the statistics that we are getting from secular researchers. This isn't a Christian research project that we're reading these statistics from. These statistics are terrifying across the board. You might be like, well, what am I talking about? I'm talking about the use of pornography, right? And this, for the older generation who watches this, you may think I'm being uh, crazy, or you may have this picture in your head of what pornography is that's probably wrong because you know, pornography use has evolved so dramatically in the last 20 years that it's not even fair to say it's the same thing. And so here's, here's, let me read you some statistics about the prevalence of use and then we'll address the issue and how it relates to what we read, right? And these are all secular studies. I, I'll provide links below. Um, but here's some statistics that will just, that should break your heart. 94% of men and 87% of women have seen pornography at some point in their lifetime. 94%. That means if 100, peop- 100 men were lined up in a room, 94 of them would have seen pornography. Six of them wouldn't have. Had 100 women, 57 of them would have seen it. They did a survey among Amazon.com users, and 92% of men and 60% of women have viewed some form of pornography in the last month. You know there are more people that have Amazon Prime than a home phone anymore? We're well beyond the 50% of this country have Amazon.com. And I don't, I'm not sure if this is restricted to just the United States or globally, but 92% of men and 60% of women viewed pornography in the last month. About half of 8th graders in this country have viewed pornography. On average, boys see pornography first at the age of 13 and girls at 17. Pornography used increased by 11% during covid Data released by the world's most popular porn site, Pornhub.com, revealed that in 2019 alone, there were over 42 billion visits to its website. There are only 7 billion people in the world. 42 billion visits in one year alone. And today, the number one way pornography is accessed is through a cell phone. So this is why I say it's not fair to say it's the same thing as it was 30 years ago. Even when I was growing up, the difference was you had to go to a store or had to go to a friend who went to a store and buy a magazine or buy a VHS. And that was the way that pornography was viewed. Nowadays, if you have a smartphone, you have access to everything and anything. And it essentially is a drug. That's what the, this research is telling us, that it physically rewires the brain. And so what Paul was talking about and saying that if you want to live holy, there are consequences, there are judgments, there are, there are consequences for this stuff. And we are seeing it. We're seeing at an astronomical rate that women and men are being abused and raped and marriages are falling apart because of sexual immorality. I mean, I want you to think about the sheer number of men and women who are using this. That means of the people watching this, chances are well, way more than half use it. Let that sink in. 
The more people use pornography, the more likely they are to experience a romantic breakup. Married people who view pornography are more likely to believe their marriage is in trouble, more likely to discuss ending the marriage, and more likely to repeatedly break up compared to those who do not view pornography. Married people who view pornography are less likely to view their relationship as good or strong, less likely to feel like a team with their spouse, and less likely to think their relationship makes them happy, and less likely to believe their relationship is nearly perfect than those who abstain from pornography. Married people who use pornography more frequently are less satisfied with their marriage. The primary reason men don't talk about their pornography use is the guilt and shame associated with it. This report has statistics in it that I can't read because <laughs> they're too violent, they're too graphic. The reality is this stuff has real consequences and it's a problem that we can't ignore as a church. And so I want to end today this video by doing two, two big applications. The first one is for parents. Parents, you have to protect your kids. You cannot give them a smartphone with unrestricted internet access. You can't. Because it's like giving them brownies filled with meth. <laughs> right? A third grader, a fifth grader, middle schooler, a high schooler is not emotionally strong enough, developed enough to resist that temptation. Because you might think your kid's great, but they go to school or they go around friends and their friends who have unrestricted smartphones can access anything and everything and show them how to do it. And the dopamine rush that they get from that, they can't handle it. They can't process it. They can't deal with it. You cannot hand your kid an unrestricted smartphone because you're handing them a meth brownie. You know they're going to eat it. You know they're going to take a bite and then they won't be able to deal with it. <laughs> Parents, you have to educate yourselves on what's out there. You have to educate yourself on how to restrict a smartphone if you're going to give your kids one. They may be mad at you that you don't let them have Facebook or you don't let them have internet on their phone, but you're saving them in the long run. There are ways to restrict what can be seen and what can't be seen on a smartphone, but it's up to you to educate yourself and not play dumb because you're handing your kids a ticking time bomb that they will have to fight the rest of their lives. Parents, you cannot play dumb. This is too big of a problem for both boys and girls. Protect your kids. Do not give them an unrestricted smartphone. Do not give them any way to access the internet in a way that you can't manage. If you don't know how to lock phones up, lock tablets up, if you don't know how to restrict what goes on and goes off, then you don't need to give your kid one. You need to educate yourself. Churches, we have to do a better job of equipping parents to learn how to do this because we're dealing with things that will cause a lifetime of struggle amongst our kids. So that's the first application I want to give today. The second one is for those of you who are struggling right now, who are dealing with sexual sin, who are dealing with pornography addictions, who are dealing with these things. You have to own up. The only way to fight off sin, to deal with sin, is to confess them. The Bible is very clear that we have to confess our sins that they may be forgiven. And then we have to get help. You know, pornography is not something that it used to be. You can access it anywhere you want and with no consequences immediately. And so a lot of us, we have to restrict our phones, right? You give your kid a phone that doesn't have internet access. Some of, some of you guys out there need to have a phone without internet access. But the reality is you're not going to fight this fight. You're, you're going to face the problems. There are going to be consequences. Eventually you will get caught unless you confess these sins and deal with it.
This is an uncomfortable subject, but we have to, as a church, start dealing with it because it's such a massive problem. I mean, it's, it's, we can't have shame and guilt about it anymore, any more than we're appropriately supposed to. There's supposed to be guilt. There's supposed to be shame, but we're supposed to find healing at the church, not shame. And so it, it should be a point that churches regularly have pornography addiction support groups because 94% of men have seen it. 90-some percent of Amazon.com user men said that terribly. 90-some percent. Let me read it back. I'm not going to edit this out because you're along with me. Um, 92% of men who, have, who use Amazon.com viewed pornography within the last month. This is a subject that we have to remove the stigma for men to confess it, for women to confess it, and to deal with it. Because if you are fighting the pornography battle on a regular basis, you're not living a life that is sexually holy, and that's not what God wants for you. It, it, it ruins marriages, it ruins families, it ruins everything in your life. And so if you are dealing with this, find help. There are a bajillion recovery and freedom websites out there. Find accountability. Confess this to someone. Say to someone you trust who is further along in their Christian journey than you and say, hey, I need help. But don't fight this alone anymore because chances are you know you're not going to overcome it on your own. I know this was a little bit of an awkward, <laughs> awkward lesson, but it's something that we have to start dealing with as a church, as Christians, because it's not getting better, it's getting worse. And we're seeing dramatic consequences because sexual morality in our media, and our news, is only getting worse. The world's not going to tell you what Jesus told you. But Paul tells us that this is what God wants for you, that you be made holy and that you have self-control, that you stay within the bounds of marriage and that you live holy because he is holy. And so don't feel guilty if you're somebody who's struggling with this, find help. It's not just you. You're not just weak. Find help. Until next time.